Hi, my name is Peter Kaiser, and welcome to the Retinal Physician Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Rishi Singh, who is a professor of ophthalmology at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine and a retina specialist at the Cole Eye Institute. Welcome, Rishi. Thanks for having me, Peter. So today we're talking about something that's a treatment challenge for all retina specialists. That's a patient with neovascular macular degeneration who has persistent fluid. So to start, what would be your definition of persistent fluid and does the location of fluid matter? Well, I think the, the definition of persistent fluid is something that we all sort of take um, a little bit of uh, gravitas toward. We sort of have different definitions. Uh, my definition in particular, I want to look at uh, registered uh, OCTs from time to time and make sure that I compare the amount of fluid, make sure the scans are first and foremost registered by the boundary scans and make sure that the fluid is truly interretinal fluid. That's the one I'm most concerned about. And I can look at the central subfield thickness as a surrogate sometimes. I can look at uh, the boundary lines and look at the thickness of the intraretinal area and see that fluid change over time. Uh, I'm less concerned about subretinal fluid as persistence because I think it's a positive biomarker for many of the studies. But I look at the OCT and the ability to, to look at image by image from, from month to month to really understand that fluid compartment. So you talked about intraretinal fluid and, and certainly there's different locations you can have fluid, intraretinal, subretinal, sub-RPE. Does the location of the fluid come into your thinking? You mentioned intraretinal, but let's just say subretinal fluid never disappears. Does that bother you? You know, I, I think it doesn't bother me, Peter, as much as I thought it would in the past. I think in the past I would have said to you, boy, I really need to dry the retina completely in order to achieve the optimal VA outcome that we could get with these, these patients. What we found essentially from multiple studies, Harbor, uh, CAT, that uh, little slivers of subrenal fluid uh, don't affect uh, the visual outcome. In fact, they may have actually have a positive prognostication in regards to visual acuity. And I, I think it, I want to be clear about this. I don't think it's the tolerance of this fluid. That, that's not the case at all. It's really just that we are treating what we think is the best possible drying we could achieve and we're getting this positive biomarker that is elicited at the same time. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the absence of artificial intelligence in our field has really led to our inability to quantify all these, these compartments, per se. We can look at them, you know, objectively on, on a OCT and think that they're be getting better or worse, but truly we don't know if they're getting better or worse because we don't have AI baked into our platforms right now to tell whether they're better or worse. So I think at this point we can say, presence or absence, which I think is a reasonable outcome. And we know the, the uh, presence of IRF is a negative prognosticator. The, the presence of SRF is a positive prognosticator, albeit we're not ignoring the fluid compartments in this treatment paradigm. So when people talk about patients who are non-responders, what would be your definition then of a non-responder? Well, it would be a, a combination of both uh, infrequency or frequency of treatment, I should say, infrequent ability to extend them beyond a certain reasonable time frame, and then the ability and the, the patient's consistent loss of visual acuity with uh, the persistence of fluid. So you're looking at a patient, for example, and I have some of these patients, as you do too, where you know you've used what we think is the best drying agent out there. And uh, the patient has uh, the need for every four week injections. And on top of that, they have 
uh, persistent fluid and they're losing vision on the eye chart. And that to me in combination of, of effect is really where I think to myself that this is a, a true failure in all respects. Even if a patient has, you know, eight week therapy, but they have IRF or, or SRF and they're losing vision, that's also a bad prognosticator. But, you know, the, the durability effect is, uh, should be factored into this discussion because I think it is a really unmet need for these patients with neovascular AMD. So when you get that patient who you can't get past weekly uh, intervals, what do you usually do in that situation? Yeah, so it's it's a combination of factors. So first, I'm making sure I didn't miss a, a masquerade sort of syndrome. So maybe I'm looking at a PCV patient, for example, and I think PCV is something that polypoidal is something we don't necessarily appreciate in every patient we look at. So I've been using far more ICG to evaluate for polyps and lesions to see if I could see anything that might indicate that there's a necessity there. Um, and I think that that's a patient I might try to use photodynamic therapy on um, given the results of Everest too. Uh, if, if, for example, I also am cutting their intervals down, I'm seeing them at intervals that are even shorter. So for example, if a patient who comes in and I'm seeing them every four weeks and I'm seeing persistent fluid despite my best efforts, I'm going to see them in two weeks to see if I can see any result of my anti-VEGF therapy. Maybe my dose is too low or I can try to double up on dosing. There have been some studies looking at uh, dosing even every two weeks with alternative agents as a result. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the one area that I have been using obviously BioView in is these patients in particular, and this works beautifully. I mean, I think no one can argue that uh, BioView uh, and, and its form has done a great job of being the best drying agent and the most effective drying agent out there. Um, when we used it for the first time, we were wowed uh, with the amount of, of fluid reduction. And I, I have more patients going to treat and extend faster as a result of being on BioView than I felt like I did with any other drug in the past. Um, I think it's the, the, the factor of mitigating the, the risks associated with BioView, which are totally reasonable to do in populations of patients when we can use it in those select individuals. Yeah, I think you bring up an interesting point. We have excellent drying agents. Um, many of us start with bevacizumab and then, and then switch over to flibercept. And as you just mentioned, if you have a patient on a flibercept and you're treating them every month, you sort of have to figure out what are you gonna do next? And, and especially if the patient's getting intraretinal fluid and getting worse, you have to balance the risk of using brolicizumab or Bayoview uh, versus the benefit where very conclusively in their phase three clinical studies, they showed better drying and, and even quicker drying. Um, and you could argue why that that is, but you know we certainly have to, to take that into account. When you treat a patient with brolicizumab uh, and obviously you're trying to extend the injection interval, uh, what do you do in terms of follow-up? How do you how do you administer this so that uh, you can keep the safety as high as possible? Yeah, so it's a great question. You know, I think the risk factors are well known. Prior history of uveitis, uh, female age is a female um, gender is another one that is always looked at. But I don't think the female gender has much as to play with it. It's just prior uveitic history. And when I do use it, I'm, I'm doing it to really uh, making sure I evaluate the retina at each and every given time point and looking for peripheral sweeps to make sure I don't see any sign of retinal vasculitis or changes. Um, thankfully, I, I don't know why this is, but thankfully at the Cleveland Clinic, we have not had a case that I'm aware of of BOV-related inflammation. We did see a couple patients from the outside come into us 
that had this, but we haven't had one of our own, which is kind of strange to see. I don't know why to, what to make of that. But we, we've been able to at least um, know what the risk factors are. Uh, and uh, there's also some data that just came out recently about B of U related uh, antibodies potentially in the serum that potentially might be a, a sense of what that might be and how that might be the uh, the condition of retinal occlusive vasculitis, which is the worst of the worst. That might be the ones where really we could potentially predict who would get those based upon those antibody titers. So I'm interested to see those results get out into the public and to learn more about that data. But that's what we've been looking at uh, from the standpoint of those patients. Yeah, and I'm also really glad that you brought up this idea of photodynamic therapy because many of these patients, even when you switch them uh, to brolicizumab, um, may still require very frequent in injections. And, and the Everest-2 and the PLANET study showed very nicely that you could reduce injection frequency. No, no improvement over uh, anti-VEGF alone using, uh, in terms of visual acuity, but at least you could extend the intervals. Um, what are you looking for and, and when do you start thinking about maybe I should be looking at an ICG or uh, there was just a recent paper from a group, a group in Singapore saying that, you know, if you go to the baseline OCT, you could oftentimes find some features that may point you that this is polypoidal. What yeah. are the things that you look for? Yeah, certainly I, I think when you look at the baseline OCT, uh, these U-shaped uh, uninverted PED lesions, which are multiple in nature, usually adjacent to each other is one of the first and foremost features that we would see. I think Greg Kakami talks about that a lot in his, his patient populations he's looked at. Um, obviously, the, the hemorrhage presence is uncommon nowadays, I find at least. And to see patients with larger hemorrhages or deeper lesions with sort of those dilated vessels on a clinical examination is not something we see necessarily with all neovascular AMD patients present. We used to see that, I think, a lot uh, in the past when patients potentially were in anticoagulants, but in the absence of an anticoagulant, we don't see a lot of hemorrhage these days. And so I would be more suspicious, especially in the patient who had a large hemorrhage in those populations. And ultimately, we rely upon ICG to really be our guidance, our gold standard for that. But in those kind of circumstances, the gold standard uh, can, the, can appear differently in different races, actually. So there's a gender, there's a race-related um, presence. Asian populations versus black patients versus Caucasian patients with PCV all have very, very different ICG features. And that's probably too long for this podcast to go over, but it's something that I think we've become acutely aware of. Well, I really appreciate you bringing up all these points and for joining us today on the Retinal Physician Podcast. I hope our listeners uh, were able to get some ideas about what to do with these patients who are difficult to treat with Neovascular AMD, and I hope you'll join us at a future podcast. Rishi, thank you very much for joining us tonight.